Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Dr. Sunita Puri, Medical Director of the Palliative Medicine Service at Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center of the University of Southern California, where she also serves as the Chair of the Ethics Committee. Sunita is the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, a critically acclaimed literary memoir examining her journey to the practice of palliative medicine and a quest to help patients and families redefine what it means to live and die well in the face of serious illness. We present Dr. Sunita Puri. Sunita Puri, you're very welcome to the show. And I wanted to start by tracing some of your background for our listeners. You are a palliative care physician, is that right? Yes. How did you get into medicine and why palliative care? So I got into medicine because my mother is an anesthesiologist and she and my dad came from India in conditions of great poverty post-independence and they made a life first in Canada and then in the United States. And I used to go when I was a kid with my mother to the hospital. My brother and I would both go together because we didn't have a babysitter. And so I would see my mother in action, and it was really quite a thing to behold. I would see her walking through the post-anesthesia care unit after cases. I was barely tall enough at that point to really see who was in the bed. And she would, uh, she was so thorough and so kind, so humanistic to her patients before and after taking them to the OR. And one of the most amazing things I remember clearly is that she would always ask her patients if they wanted to pray before going into the operating room. And I, since then, I've really never seen that done by a physician. And so I grew up with this woman who was both, actually both my parents, both lead both deeply scientific and deeply spiritual. And I think I went into palliative care because palliative care allows for both of those to sit side by side. Mm. The medicine and the belief that spirituality is a healing tool and something that can help us find hope when a situation might feel very hopeless. Mm. So you, even at that tender age, you were thinking in terms of marrying the two things, your spirituality and the science. But why palliative care? Why did you end up in palliative care? Why didn't you end up in anesthesia or in uh, intensive care? That's a great question. So, you know, it's interesting. In my book, I write in one chapter about how during my residency, I really tried everything I could to try to make myself love ICU medicine because ICU medicine was so similar to what my mom does in anesthesia. And I would call her the morning after I would be on call doing swans, putting in difficult-to-place lines, intubating people, changing their settings on the ventilator. And I really wanted to love it and follow in my mother's footsteps. But when I was on that rotation, and that was a several-month-long rotation, I often felt like all I was doing was using technology to prolong people's deaths. And that I had no ability to help people understand how sick they were and what, and the fact that what we were doing would not necessarily ever return them to the person they once were. And so what I really loved about being in the ICU was the opportunity to actually have those discussions with people 
and get to know them and through the quality of life they wanted, through the sorts of suffering they would not want on the under any circumstance. And that actually helped guide me to take the best care of them because they were fully informed about what their disease state was. They were fully informed about what the outcomes were likely to be. And they could make their choices from a place of true empowerment rather than me just saying, okay, now your kidneys are failing, so we're going to do dialysis without ever talking about what it meant that someone has two other organs failing and now a third is failing. I never stopped back to explain, step back to explain the significance. I just kind of soldiered on doing one procedure after another, and that ate away at me. What I was thinking as he was speaking was that doctors don't like talking about death, do they? They don't like saying the end is coming and we need to prepare you for that eventuality. And really, these things that we're doing, all they're doing is prolonging uh, the suffering to an extent. What is your perspective on this? Uh, And how comfortable are you telling people that death is, is imminent? So I think you're very right that doctors, generally speaking, have a very tough time talking about death and suffering and dying. And I think it's really because our whole training is about sustaining life. It's about learning how to diagnose. It's about learning to make the right treatment plan. But it's not really about taking a step back and looking at someone's overall trajectory. And we get lost in doing one procedure after another. And to some extent, I think the public expects us to fill that role of being heroes and treaters. And so we kind of, it's a really interesting relationship between how we're socialized as doctors and how the public has their own expectation of us as heroes. And when you're coming from that perspective, it's really, really difficult for people, for physicians to stop and say, I actually have to learn that I will lose a lot of the patients I see, and that's not my fault. And that part of what it means to be a good doctor is to walk people through all stages of illness, but also be able to have the foresight to know when death is coming and to talk about that. And in my role, A lot of what I have to do is to help my colleagues find the language to sit with someone and talk compassionately and concisely about their current condition, their hopes for themselves, and making recommendations about next steps. I think we feel like we need to leave a lot of really weighty decisions up to patients and families when we have not necessarily explained the context in which they are making those decisions. I can imagine that there'll be a lot of stories you could tell about situations like this. And can you recall any where you had this conversation and it actually helped the situation? Certainly. So, you know, for example, several weeks ago, I took, I was asked to help with the care of a patient who, you know, unfortunately had had a lot of chronic health issues and then had a major stroke. And she and her family, actually, she had left a beautiful advance directive that really clearly spelled out that she would not want to have her life artificially prolonged. 
that she would not want certain things done to her if they wouldn't lead to recovery. She didn't want artificial nutrition and hydration under any circumstances. And so that, what was difficult was that the the family, although they knew the content of the advanced directive, um, they really wanted to kind of go against the patient's articulated wishes. And they asked for a tracheostomy, they asked for a feeding tube. And one of the things I had to do in that conversation was to really frame that advanced directive and that patient's discussions with her loved ones about her wishes as a true gift to them. And I think it was really hard for them to wrap their minds around the fact that she was dying and that the days before she got sick, she was fine. So I think part of how I approach it is to really validate the fears and the anger and the anguish of the family and to gently lead them in the right direction that's taking them out of what they want for their mother and helping them to see what the mother wanted for herself, which is really their role as a surrogate is to echo their mother's words. But it was a lot of, it took about an hour and a half for the meeting And I did not step, I didn't shy away from using words like death and dying and suffering. And at a certain point in the meeting, they softened and were able to ask me, well, what's it going to look like? How would we take care of her at home? What does hospice provide? And that's when I knew their perspective was shifting. Mm. And really what it took was my own willingness to be courageous and to move towards the conflict rather than run away from it. And if you bring your, it's almost like a meditative practice that you bring every ounce of your presence and focus it on that family. And that will allow you to really focus on what they're saying and what they're not saying. And then we move them through the place of deep grief and continue to support them in the next steps. And my patient eventually went home on hospice and died very comfortably at home. And so that's a recent example of something where, you know, I really had to use all my linguistic powers and really be in the moment fully with that patient and her family. And it's not always easy and it doesn't always work out. And sometimes it takes many, many, many discussions. But I think what helps me is to know that at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is help the patients have their dignity at every stage of an illness and to help prepare them and their loved ones for what it is going to look like when the body enters an entirely natural process of dying and to help them understand that when medicine stands in the way of a natural death at a certain point, All we do is prolong suffering and cause pain, not only just to the patient, but to everyone involved, the family, the medical team, the nursing staff, everyone. This has been a very interesting debate here in Australia, but also I'm sure in other parts of the world, where in the eyes of families, in the eyes of the public, they see it as two options. Option one, heroics, tubes, pipes, medications, all that's involved in prolonging life or just yes. terminating life. They don't see yes. that there's a third way and a third way which gives the patient dignity that allows a comfort at the end of what is a natural process where somebody somebody's life is coming to an end. Is that how you see things from your perspective? 
I definitely think there's this weird, toxic binary between going full speed ahead and quote unquote giving up. And I think that binary kind of railroads genuine discussions about what's possible for a person. I definitely think the third way is the way, which is to say, there are ways we we can always treat you. We will always care for you. But the goal of the treatment and the and what it will look like is going to shift as your body shows us what it can and can't withstand. And I try to frame it in those terms because especially in the United States, people have this thought that if I just will it away, the cancer will go away. If I'm a fighter, I'll push through the ICU. And I really think that does a disservice to people because it, again, goes into that binary of either I'm a fighter and I do everything or I'm a quitter and I give up. Mm. But the third way is to say, this is where you're at in the stage of your illness. We can do X, Y, and Z in the hospital to help reverse A, B, and C. But your body is going to need to meet us where the treatments are. We can give you treatment, but if the body doesn't respond then we need to talk about what it will look like to shift towards the goal of comfort measures and a natural death. And that way, we do try what we can, but we don't offer to continue things that would be of absolutely no benefit to a patient or a family. That's a wonderful perspective. And I think that many of us share that perspective. And it's not one that you hear articulated as often as 30, 40 years ago when before it became possible just to terminate life immediately, or uh, as seems to have happened in the last 40 years, do everything possible to prolong life. And it takes away from human dignity because there is a way in which, I guess, people can end their lives uh, and still contribute to the narrative of the family, to the narrative of their lives, to contribute something, even in the moments as they are leaving this earth, they are contributing something that is of huge value. Absolutely. And that, you know, people want to be remembered in certain ways. I don't think that people always want to be remembered as dying in an ICU or looking a certain way at the very end of their life. And I think one of the biggest problems in medicine is we don't ask about that. We don't ask people what matters to you. What level of suffering would you be willing to put up with for a very small chance of living longer? What are your the abilities you have right now that would that if you lost them would not make your life worth living? Where would you want to die? You know, these are things we really are never taught to ask and yet I feel knowing those answers are so key to helping people really make the most of their whole life including their deaths. I want to pivot slightly now and talk about your other career, which is your career as a writer. Tell us about your book. I wrote my book. It came out last year. And before that, I had written for the New York Times and the LA Times and the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I'd really written a lot of essays that took my experience with patients and melded it together with personal experiences to shine a light on a particular issue in healthcare or otherwise. And my book was, it's called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And it's really about my path to pursuing the very 
unpopular field of palliative care. And it weaves together my, my upbringing as the daughter of Indian immigrants who knew really nothing other than poverty in their young lives and held on to God as a way through their suffering. And it melds together my early exposure to the certainty of suffering in our lives and our obligation to find a way to move through it, spiritually or otherwise. And I talk about how that influence ultimately led me to practice palliative care. And within that, I kind of braid together family stories and patient stories to illuminate what palliative care actually is and what it isn't, but through literary storytelling. And what's the book called again, and where can, where can we get hold of it? So it's called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the Eleventh Hour. And you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at your local bookseller. Um, you can probably also find it on your bookseller's online cat catalog. But I think especially for Australia, um, online might be the best option. Wonderful. And what we will do is we'll make sure that they're in the notes uh, that will we'll include this podcast so that people can find it easier. What takes somebody like you mm -hmm. from a, a doer to a thinker and, and beyond that? So it's interesting. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was really obsessed with me learning English well. And so every day I would have to write a page or two about anything I wanted. And he would correct my grammar You know, he would tell me if the sentence just makes no sense or the story just makes no sense. And so very early on, I was hooked on writing and definitely hooked on reading. And, you know, in those early days, I would read things like Beverly Cleary's books over and over and over again, or Judy Bloom. And then I moved into the more classic forms of writing. Um, and I remember reading Ernest Hemingway when I was maybe in sixth grade and was like, wow, you know, this is incredible. And I just had this huge appetite for storytelling that was both from books and was also my own. And I think, you know, I always carried that writer's heart with me. I wrote throughout my life, sometimes published things, sometimes didn't. And I really found that that writer's lens was my way of making sense of everything happening around me. And so when I went to medical school, I started keeping notes on the things I would see that were either uplifting or bothersome and try to kind of get on the page what bothered me about situations and how I would resolve them. And then I published a couple essays in the Journal of the American Medical Association and went to a wonderful writer's retreat on the last day of my fellowship in palliative care. I took that last day off with my program director's blessing, and I went to a week-long writer's retreat in Big Sur, and I'd never been to such a thing. And that was where all of the inspiration from my book started. And I really just started writing pieces to help me make sense of what I was seeing. So one of my early pieces was about taking care of patients on hospice who lived in very impoverished areas in, in Los Angeles. And what was notable for me as a new attending was that I knew the services I could give them, but if they lived in homes where the kids couldn't take care of the parent because they all had to work multiple jobs to stay afloat, 
then that person was really not benefiting from everything hospice has to offer. And, and unfortunately, patients with really bad social situations, we had to stop hospice services for them. So this whole degree, the inequalities in life leading to inequalities in death was something that I had never been taught in any of my medical training, and I didn't know how to handle it. So I started writing pieces to kind of bring public awareness and medical awareness to things that weren't a part of my training, but that was deeply bothersome and very important to taking good care of patients. And then the more I wrote, everything kind of became fell into place for a book. And I was very lucky to have the publisher that I have and the editor that I had. She really shared the same vision of the book as something that was above and the first and foremost was a literary work. It was not a textbook. It was not written for a medical audience alone. It was really written for anybody who wants to pick up a good book. And it has a fiction-like quality to it, which is what I really wanted. Because if I sat there and talked only about my own experience, that would be boring. Mm -hmm. If I talked only about my patients, that might be depressing. So I blended the parts of me and the parts of my patient stories that mattered the most and that really set me on my journey, I blended those together so that it wasn't only an informative read, but actually just a good read. Or at least I think it's a good read. <laughs> I'm sure it's a fantastic read. And I'm just reflecting in my own mind and playing back what you're saying. And for, for me, the highlights seem to be that you you with your mom when you saw these people pre-anesthesia where your mom's actually addressing the whole person, the whole patient, not just the physical, but the spiritual and psychological as well, I, mean, I imagine. And then deciding that you are going to emulate that learning medicine. And then critically reflecting, reflecting when you're in medical school, learning to notice, learning to see with your eyes and, uh, and listen with your heart. And then learning the craft of writing, which you did once you graduated. But underneath all of that, Sunita, comes the notion that you are a compassionate and caring person and that all you've done is use all of these skills in order to express yourself in the world. Would that be a fair summary? Definitely. I mean, I don't know if I'm super compassionate, but I, and it's hard for me even to hear nice things said about me, which is maybe partly the Indian upbringing, <laughs> but, but it is what I strive to do is be a thinker and someone who is interested in hands-on patient care. Like I could never see myself not doing patient care. That's vital to me. Yes. What interested me in particular as a medical educator is this notion of reflection and learning to reflect while at medical school. Say something a little more about that. Who encouraged you and was it part of your course? Did you meet somebody there who said here and did somebody actually critique your writing? That is a great question. You know, back then, no, there were no courses for, that encouraged students to write. I really kind of did it on my own for myself initially. Um, and I think, I, you know, I went to a medical school that's a really fantastic place and that is now, I think, a lot more student-centered than it was when I was going there. But I think 
when we don't reflect, a lot of things build up in us and we don't know how to express or deal with our distress. And I saw that in my classmates. And, you know, we would talk through things like seeing our first code as a medical student or seeing very sick patients just bouncing between the ward and the ICU, not knowing what is our end goal for them. And I would, we would talk to each other, but we were also kind of separated by rotations. So writing became a space for me to really put down my observations and to remember my patients and to remember the tough situations that I came into and to find a way of resolving them for myself. And a lot of that resolution was there is so much that I will never be able to fix. So how am I going to find peace with that so that I can do my best, but also know there are parts to medicine that are very mysterious. Like why does one person come in with a heart attack and he leaves the hospital and another person comes in with a heart attack and he dies in the cath lab? And those were the sorts of things I didn't feel were being addressed and were hard to find time to debrief. So I would just use the page to debrief them with myself. But was there somebody, a mentor, who said, "Can I? what are you doing? You're writing. Can I see? Can I encourage that? Or did you find that came from within yourself? So I had, um, it really kind of came from me. And I have a very, very special relationship with my high school writing teacher. I still, t- I just talked to her earlier today. And I would send her everything I wrote. And she would critique it. And so I had this kind of relationship with someone who knew me for a long time, who knew that I loved to write, and who fostered my confidence in myself. There wasn't really anybody in my medical school that helped with that in terms of our direct um, clinical educators. There was one woman on staff who herself is a writer and a doctor, and I met with her a couple times, but... I had never sent her pieces, for example, or sought a very deep mentoring relationship with her. I will say that once I finished residency and went into fellowship, I became very close with a writer named Katie Butler, whose work is just so phenomenally beautiful. And she kind of became the main mentor to me in my writing career. And I really do think everyone needs a mentor because... Writing is very solitary, and you need someone to dialogue with about what you're writing and to help you explore your ideas and to challenge you, really. I just talked to Katie earlier today, too. So it's the sort of relationship that you really have to find if you want it. It's not the sort of thing that generally falls into anyone's lap, but I was very motivated to be as good a writer as I could in order to illuminate things for the public about medicine and healthcare that were not obvious or talked about. And Katie's work is real, does a really good job of that. So you're really looking outside of medicine to hone that craft, to hone that skill of writing. And the other thing is, I imagine that it with teaching, you, you become your own guide, don't you? Because there are so many things that we observe on wards in the emergency department and clinic that are not part of a medical curriculum. If somebody's brought in by the police and they've committed a murder, but they've got a wound and you've got to look after them, how do you deal with your feelings about 
what they may or may not have done, given that you are facing somebody who, in other circumstances, you might find quite objectionable, or you're dealing with somebody who has committed a theft or, or has assaulted a member of staff in hospital, etc. These are things that do bear reflecting about because you've got to help yourself learn. Yes. And those are part of what we call, at least in the US, the hidden curriculum. Skills and observations and ways of approaching tough situations that are never really taught to us. So if somebody came in, and I had this experience in residency where there was someone who had committed some offense that landed him in a, in a pretty serious prison. It was brought in with, you know, widespread cancer. And a lot, the rumors started circulating about what he'd done to get himself to prison. Some nurses, when they heard what had happened, said, you know, I don't feel comfortable taking care of him. And I struggled with that, with people saying that I'm not, I don't want to take care of this man because of something he did. And I don't actually know if the rumor was even true. But I went in every day and, you know, the, there was a police officer, some sort of guard outside the room every day on the whiteboard where it says which patients are in which rooms. There wasn't even a name. There was just his prisoner number. And I remember telling myself, you know, I cannot judge this man. I am just here to take good care of him because Lord knows, like, I am not, I am not God. I will not be the one to absolve him of his sins or to judge his sins. I'm just here to be a doctor to another human being who has made a really huge mistake in his life, no matter what it is. And so I had to kind of discuss it with my medical student at the time and with the and with my interns. And one of them really did not want to round on him. And I had to kind of explain to this guy that, you know, we are charged with taking care of this man. There's someone around to make sure it's a secure situation. So your safety is not going to be compromised. But, you know, you don't know what any other patient you've taken care of has done. You don't know if you've taken care of someone who's beaten his wife or someone who's assaulted a child. You have no idea who anybody really is, but you are still obligated to give them the best medical care because that is your role as a doctor. And I will be here to debrief your feelings with you, but I'm going to try to support you in your development as a doctor by doing your best as a doctor. And we will definitely debrief everything you're feeling about this but I can't let you step away from the case. And that was a hard call for me to make as a third-year resident, but my attending completely backed me up. And it's very human to have these responses to people who may have done something reprehensible. But I think at the end of the day, what we have to do, what our charge is, is to look at everyone as a human being and as a human being with a, with a body that is physiologically not working. So you can respect the person and take care of their body. But to step away based on a rumor, I kind of told him, is really not okay. And if you would like, I can move you to another team. But if you're on my team, I need to support you in doing the right thing for him. You're right. As doctors, we see humanity in, with all of its imperfections, whether it's at the end of life, whether it's in the middle of life, 
or even at the beginning of life. And in order for us to be compassionate and thoughtful, we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to develop as healers, which is the role that society has thrust us into, whether we like it or not. But the Journal of Health Design, which is uh, the, the journal that we are uh, podcasting from, it's about small change, big difference. And often that small change starts with ourselves. What is it that we can change within ourselves? Because we're not going to change the system and we're not going to change the the fact that people are incarcerated when they may be innocent or they may be they they may they may commit these awful crimes which then we then have to deal with the consequences of and i think what you've taught us very much sanita is that we need to grow we need to reflect and you're right medicine and writing the two things that you've married together are a really good combination because it makes you a better healer. And even if you write just for yourself and journal just for yourself, the beautiful thing about it is that it takes you away from your tendencies as a doctor. So you're not using rationality and logic. You're really trying to focus on your heart and how your feelings move around in your body. And it's a totally unstructured, just for you sort of self-care process. And I think we as doctors also don't know how to take care of ourselves because no one teaches us. And I've definitely experienced that it's much easier for me to just be at work where there's a structure and I have a role than to be out in my life where things are a lot more complicated and I'm not necessarily taking care of myself in order to deal with complexity or enjoy my life even. So I think there's a real need for all of us to find a way that we decompress, process, and really take care of ourselves so that we can act in the best interest of our patients and be healthy and enjoy our lives ourselves. That appears to be the secret of for so many clinicians and, and successful clinicians and clinicians like yourself who are making such a major contribution to the world. Now, before we wind up, where can people find you, Sunita? Do you have a website? Are you talked about your book. Is there some other way in which they can connect with all that you are doing? Certainly. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the same handle, which is at Sunita Puri MD. And then you can also find me on Facebook under my name and um, at my website, which is www.sunitapuri.com. And I would love to hear from any anyone who's listened to this and has comments or feedback or disagrees with me. I welcome all comments. And actually, I really appreciate them. Sunita, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor to talk with you. Thank you for having me. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.